By downloading or listening to this podcast, you are agreeing to Moody's legal terms and conditions found at moody's.com slash disclaimer, including that the information provided is not investment or financial advice, and that Moody's will not be liable for losses arising from your use of the information. I'm Danielle Reed, and this is Moody's Talks Focus on Finance. In today's episode, I'll be speaking to Moody's banking team analyst, Fadi Masi, about how crypto exchange Coinbase is facing higher risks following the demise of crypto trading platform FTX. I'll also be talking to Moody's banking team analyst, Peter Nerby, about banks lending exposure to Twitter, all 13 billion of it. Later, my co-host Aaron McDermott will talk to Associate Managing Director Jill Satina and to David Fanger. Both of them are also from Moody's banking team about how the Federal Reserve's latest monetary policy is affecting U.S. banks. Aaron, hi. Welcome to Focus on Finance. Hi, Danielle. It's good to be here. So for listeners who have not heard Aaron before, this is, in fact, Aaron's first episode. And she's been at Moody's for just a couple months now after many years as an editor at The Daily Beast. But she and I go way back, having worked together at the Wall Street Journal in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Our cubicles were right next to each other. They were. Erin got to hear all my reporting on pricey real estate. Okay, and to the topic at hand, the Fed. I think the big picture thing to point out here is that what the Fed does has, of course, a huge impact on the economy in the U.S. and globally but also quite naturally has a really big impact on banks. Yeah, that's right. One of the key highlights from the report that Jill and David wrote is the Fed's current monetary policy called quantitative tightening. And it raises certain risks for banks more than the last time the Fed was tightening monetary policy, which was back in 2017. Well, I know you're going to get into what those risks are when you sit down with Jill and David. Just a quick definition here. What is quantitative tightening exactly? Well, it's easier to explain if you understand its opposite, which is known as quantitative easing. So quantitative easing or QE is when the Fed or any central bank buys securities like treasuries or mortgage-backed securities in the open market in order to increase the money supply and encourage more economic activity. And that kind of strategy is one central banks use when interest rates are already low, near zero, and the economy is kind of sluggish and needs a boost. Right. So you can think of quantitative tightening or QT as the inverse of that. The economy is running too hot, so the central bank shrinks its balance sheet in order to decrease the money supply and slow things down in the economy. I see. So... Yeah, that's kind of what you'd expect in an inflationary environment like the one we're in now. I am really looking forward to your conversation with Jill and David in just a few minutes. But first, it's time for Fast Finance, where Moody's analysts give their very quick takes on topics in the news. Joining me now is Fadi Masi here to talk about how turbulence in the crypto market could affect Coinbase. Fadi, welcome back to Focus on Finance. Hi, Danielle. So Fadi, you were on just a week ago to talk about the failure of crypto trading platform FTX and the implications of that for banks. 
Ultimately, you said banks are pretty insulated from all that turmoil. But for Coinbase, which is a publicly traded crypto exchange, it's a different story, right? It's a different story. So Coinbase uh, reported a very small direct exposure to FTX, but it's different in the sense that we think that what happened with FTX will have a long lasting effect on the operating environment and the crypto ecosystem as a whole. And Coinbase is a big player in that ecosystem, right? So uh, it's important to note that Coinbase and FTX operate very different business models. And we go into a lot of detail on this in a report that we just published on this topic. Now, at the same time, despite that small direct exposure that Coinbase has to FTX, it will have to deal with the indirect consequences impacting the broader crypto market. Right. Got it. So how does the shift in the operating environment tie in with the rating action Moody's recently took on Coinbase? I mean, my first thought after the FTX news broke was, you know, what if people are just clean, scared away from crypto. Yeah, I mean, the shockwaves from the FTX bankruptcy are heavily disrupting the crypto operating environment. And we're seeing a number of other crypto lending firms declaring bankruptcies or facing their own challenges. We expect all of that to further shake the trust and raise doubts around the uh, ongoing prospects of crypto. Now, how does that impact Coinbase? We think it'll manifest itself through lower client engagement, especially because crypto prices have declined significantly. So there's less interest there, which would mean lower trading volumes, which is credit negative for Coinbase. And so we place the ratings on review for downgrade, even though Coinbase does have a strong liquidity, but the rating action is mainly to reflect that weaker operating environment. Fadi, thanks for that. And now we're joined by Peter Nurby here to talk about how Twitter's bank lenders are faring. Peter, welcome. Hi, Danielle. So as I am pretty sure everyone listening has already heard, Twitter has a new owner. And that new owner needed to line up some financing to seal the deal, about $13 billion of which came from a syndicate of banks, in this case, seven banks, for those keeping score at home. Those are Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, Barclays, Mitsubishi, BNP Paribas, Mizuho, and Societe Generale. So, Peter, what happened after they syndicated the loan? Well, in, in fact, what's kind of happened is that they haven't yet been able to syndicate the loan because when the deal was done, uh, agreed back in April, really the leverage finance market has seized up and spreads have widened out. And so the banks have not really been able to move these positions. And then on top of that, you've had, you know, the business and strategy changes that are going on at Twitter. Uh, and so the banks have kind of delayed the broad syndication right now. What that means is that banks are supposed to stay in the moving business, not the storage business, as they like to say. And if you're going, if you're not going to syndicate, you need to mark these loans to market. And that's kind of a risk management discipline that the banks use. They also have some other uh, important protections that are worth mentioning when they think about these kind of underwriting exposures. They, they have the fees that they earn on the, on the transaction, which can absorb losses in certain cases. And there's also this concept of market flex, and that is the ability to change the pricing on the loans when market conditions change. And banks will even look at their total pipeline and put on some tail risk hedges to manage 
the overall appetite for for underwriting risk. So the banks the banks are doing all of that right now. Okay, got it. So this group of seven banks all have some part of this debt on their books, as you just said, and they have to mark the debt to market on those books. And in your report, you estimated how much the banks might have to mark the debt down. They don't actually disclose how much, so that has to be an estimate. Um, you know, what did you find and what does it mean for the banks? Well, uh, we tried to keep it pretty, pretty simple, Danielle, and we said, let's just look at a 10% mark on the senior unsecured uh, commitments, which is consistent with probably a 50% spread widening on, on those kind of assets and a 15% mark on the more junior bridge loan. And that creates some mark-to-market losses that we then compare to the pre-tax earnings, which is the first line of defense that any bank has to absorb losses, and then to CET1 capital. And um, these, despite, you know, we're talking about 13 billion, these are big banks. And these numbers, um, as a result, are somewhat manageable, I would say. The largest losses we saw at any individual bank was 4% of pre-tax income, seven basis points of CE21. So that's, that's pretty manageable. And that's even before fees and flex. So, you know, this is, I think, really not that surprising given the scale and diversification of these banks and their emphasis post the global financial crisis, honestly, to really focus on distributing risk and recycling capital. So they're preparing to do that. And even if that means absorbing some losses. So they look they look pretty manageable losses to us, but Twitter's situation will continue to evolve as its strategy evolves. Peter, thanks so much for that. And I am sure there is going to be more news to come on Twitter. And now we're joined by Aaron McDermott who will be talking to Jill Satina and David Fanger of Moody's banking team about the Fed's current monetary policy and the effect it is having on U.S. banks. Thanks, Danielle. Jill and David, welcome. Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. Before we get into the full picture of U.S. monetary policy and its implications for U.S. banks, the two of you just published on a new and unusual data point that popped up just before Americans were getting ready to sit down for their Thanksgiving holiday dinner. Namely, bank borrowings at the Fed's discount window hit $9.1 billion, which is the highest level since June 2020. What was going on? Yeah, so it's definitely an interesting data point we observed. Um, Banks often hold extra liquidity before a long holiday weekend. Uh, But the discount window borrowing uh, was up 1.3%. a billion from the prior week. So the usual jump and the amount outstanding, not just in the, the last week, but in fact, over the last three months, the average uh, of almost six billion is pretty high usage and levels actually rarely seen outside of a recession. So this is clearly a signal uh, that the liquidity may indeed be tightening quite a bit for some banks. We've seen increases in wholesale borrowing as well. So all of this is really tied in quite well with the subject we're going to cover next, which is the Fed's rapid tightening of monetary policy. David, you mentioned tightening monetary policy, and that's a good segue into discussion of Jill's recent piece on quantitative tightening. Now, monetary policy can get very technical very fast. I gave a very brief definition of quantitative easing 
or QE and quantitative tightening or QT at the start of today's episode. But Jill, maybe just a quick reminder here on that. What are QE and QT? Yeah, sure. Um, thanks for that. So QE, let's just maybe start with why why did the QE happen? So recall the global financial crisis, 08-09, of the Fed in response to um, you know an extremely severe recession, uh, cut rates to zero, didn't want to take interest rates negative. And so the way of providing additional stimulus was basically for the Fed to go out and buy treasuries and agency MBS to lower long-term interest rates. And the idea is that lowering long-term interest rates uh, eases financial conditions. Some Fed research, this is referred to as the portfolio balance channel, basically lowering long-term rates, uh, stimulates people to invest in credit, move out the risk curve, move out the duration curve, and that this is kind of generally stimulative. So that's kind of QE in a nutshell. Um, It involves the Fed purchasing government securities in the secondary market from other participants. And then QT, it sounds similar. It is a little different in the sense that uh, the Fed is not selling government securities. But aside from that, it's it's broadly similar. In QT, the Fed is allowing um, the securities that are maturing on its balance sheet, the treasuries and the agency mortgage-backed securities, just you know, when they roll off, it's not reinvesting. And that means that basically private market participants now need to to fund that credit that previously was being funded by the Fed. So that's at a very high level. QT also, you know, if, if we believe QE eases financial conditions, QT, of course, um, tightens them. So that, that's kind of it at a high level. Gotcha. And David, as someone long versed in bank regulation and monetary policy, what are the most significant ways QT in particular is affecting banks? Well, there are a bunch of them, but, you know, first of all, simply put, you know, once the Fed stops buying Treasury securities, then the private sector has to step in and buy more of the securities the Treasury is issuing. And certainly the Treasury is continuing to issue securities. Uh, That drains deposits from banks, which then forces some banks to rely more heavily on wholesale funding to fund their balance sheet, fund their loan growth. And wholesale funding is more expensive and also more confidence sensitive. So it can clearly pressure banks' profitability, and actually weaken their funding profiles. But also, just as QE is intended to lower long-term interest rates, QT can have the effect of raising long-term interest rates. And while this can help lift banks' net interest margins, um, it can also create sizable unrealized losses in their securities portfolios. Okay, thanks for the explainers. Shifting over to Jill and some very interesting background for listeners. Before Jill came to Moody's, she was on the front lines at the Federal Reserve. Jill, you were there behind the scenes of the Dallas Fed when the first round of tightening QT1 came to an abrupt halt in 2019, when banks' liquidity reserves wobbled and repo rates spiked. What did you see during that round of tightening and how did it affect banks? Yeah, no, thanks for the question, Erin. You know, when I was at the, the Dallas Fed, I think we saw a couple of things. First, what we saw was, you know, in terms of banks, that as the Fed started into QT1 with the goal to just try to right size its balance sheet and get down to the lowest comfortable level of reserves, that that process um, impacted the smaller banks first. So basically, you can think of, you know, kind of the community banks and then kind of moving up the tier to regionals. In terms of 
you know, them having more challenges, retaining deposits, having to pay up for deposits, and having to increase their use of wholesale funding, including um, federal home loan bank advances. The other thing that happened, though, was, you know, there was and still is a um, senior financial officer survey uh, and some of the survey questions during the QT period related to reserve levels. And this was used um, rather extensively to kind of help guide the thinking about where the least comfortable level of reserves um, might be for the banking sector overall. And, you know, I will say that right up until the eve of kind of the, the problems in the repo market, that survey was saying, hey, everything is fine. You know, reserves are ample. Um, but if you looked at some of the data around um, the spread between the effective federal funds rate and um, interest on excess reserves, there was uh, a widening spread there that was indicative of um, liquidity and money markets being tight. And, you know, we have an exhibit in the report that actually sort of shows that as reserves were coming down say in 2018 and even even more so into 2019, that you could see that spread becoming positive and, and larger. Um, and that, that's, I think, a really useful way to think about, you know, kind of quantitatively observing this, this problem. So, you know, the repo market spiked because uh, liquidity conditions were rather strained. We had um, that happen. And that was really uh, the incident that caused QT1 to, for lack of a better word, come to an end. Okay, that's why the first round of QT didn't last very long, which brings us to the present round of QT, which is QT2. A key point of your report is that the effects for banks are going to be different from back in 2017 and also more severe. Why is that? What's different? And what are some of the biggest negative effects for banks going to be? Well, one big difference um, is uh, the just the general point QT2 is um, much larger in scale than QT1. So when it was fully implemented, the QT1 was basically uh, allowing $50 billion a month to roll off the Fed's balance sheet. Um, QT2, the FOMC approved for $95 billion. In practice, they're probably getting somewhere closer to about $75 billion a month um, in terms of portfolio runoff and balance sheet shrinkage. So, But the, the scale is, is different. The other things um, that you know we talk about in the report as to why um, it will have a bigger impact on banks relative to QT1 is um, we think it's going to have a bigger impact on bank funding. Uh, we think it's going to have a bigger impact on bank capital. And then um, the third reason is just uh, in an already slowing economy that because it does tighten financial conditions, could have an outsized impact on the economy and thus in turn loan losses. Okay, let's take those in turn. Jill? Why will the impact on bank funding be greater this time around? Yeah, I know it's um, just to kind of unpack that a little bit. You know, one of the things to understand is that relative to, say, QT1, we have this new-ish or expanded facility called the Overnight Reverse Repo Facility. And the Overnight Reverse Repo Facility is open to money market funds. They're allowed to hold uh, reserves at the Fed, um, like banks. And uh, because uh, they are holding um, so much in terms of reserves at the Fed and reserves at the Fed are this great asset, right, which um, has very has no interest rate risk because it reprices with every FOMC rate hike. You know, basically, the point is, is that there's there's competition between banks and money funds for those uh, balances. And, and that in turn has implications for how much deposit banks have and their potential need to, to obtain marketable funds. So that, that's really quite different. And then, of course, the fact that you've got 
QT unfolding against what is a very aggressive interest rate hiking cycle that the FOMC is pursuing as well. So all of those things, you know, make it more significant in terms of impacting bank funding than I would say QT1. Thank you for giving us such a good picture of how the funding landscape is changing for banks. That second main impact your report notes will be on bank capital. And David, it looks like the effect may be greater this time around. Yeah, definitely looks like that's the case. Now, there are a couple of reasons for this. The first is that banks are just holding a lot more investment securities than they were last time around. Uh, Many banks grew their securities holdings a lot during QE and the pandemic to protect themselves from falling net interest margins. Across the entire banking system, investment securities grew by nearly $2.3 trillion from the start of 2020 to the end of 2021. As I mentioned a few moments ago, rising interest rates are creating unrealized losses on those securities because uh, those are largely fixed rate securities, treasuries and agencies. And those unrealized losses, although they don't flow through earnings, do affect banks' equity. So it's a contra item, negative item, other comprehensive income in shareholders' equity. Now, for most banks, these unrealized losses are actually excluded from regulatory capital. So on a regulatory basis, for many banks, this doesn't have an impact. But the very largest banks are required to include this. And so it has impacted capital ratios at the very largest U.S. banks. But you know, we also know that the impact of QT is leading to some deposit outflows. And if banks have to sell some of these securities to fund those deposit outflows, then those losses could end up being realized, uh, would flow through earnings, and would impact every bank's regulatory capital. But even if they remain unrealized, if the losses are large enough, uh, they can, in fact, affect a bank's ability to borrow at the federal home loan bank. And that's a very important alternative source of funding for many banks. So definitely pretty significant impact. Jill, what about the third point of difference you mentioned, uh, potentially higher loan losses because QT2 is taking place in an already slowing economy? Yeah, um, no, thanks for that, Erin. Just to kind of contrast, you know, again, QT1 with QT2. QT1 was about undertaken initially to right-size the balance sheet. QT2, you know, basically, as we talked about QE, I think it's unquestionable, it eases financial conditions, so QT uh, tightens them. And, you know, in addition to these very uh, large increases in the policy rate, we've also got large QT going on, which is tightening U.S. financial conditions and tightening as the economy slows. It's much more typical for the Fed to be tightening policy when the economy is accelerating and we want to tamp down on an accelerating economy. Here, the Fed is trying to tamp down on high levels of inflation. So I think it's quite different for you know, those reasons and as a result has the potential to, uh, to really have a more meaningful impact in terms of loan losses uh, by decelerating the economy. Jill, uh, just stepping back a moment, uh, you mentioned a little while ago that you were talking about repo. And it made me think that some listeners might be wondering, you know, why wouldn't this round of QT lead to the same kind of spike in repo rates that happened in the first round of QT? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. Thanks, Danielle. So first thing I, I would say, and we, again, have an exhibit that kind of thinks about this question and the report in the current context, 
the level of reserves in the banking system, although it has come down by a trillion dollars already, it, it is still ample. We don't see any evidence in terms of this measure I was referring to between the effective Fed funds rate and interest on excess reserves. We don't see any evidence at this juncture of uh, there being pressure in U.S. money markets on that. But you know, the another piece is that there has been the implementation of the standing repo facility, which is something that the FOMC put in place to kind of provide a backstop um, to repo rates. And while that that is helpful, um, and and you know, could also help prevent something like what occurred in 2019 from reoccurring, I will say that that facility has um, some limitations in the sense that the participation of banks. Uh, isn't quite as broad as maybe one might hope. And the other thing I would say on that is that uh, banks' participation in that type of uh, the standing repo facility, again, which is meant as a backstop to the repo market by the Fed, it, it, it does worsen their leverage ratios. So depending on where banks stand on their leverage ratio, they they might face challenges in terms of participating in it. So, you know, big, big picture, I think, you know, right now we're not concerned about this, but this is something that we'll be monitoring um, closely as, you know, we see QT unfold over 2023 and about, you know, say 900 billion um, further get drained. Definitely going to be watching it. Got it. Jill, David and Aaron, thank you all very much for your insights. And also a big thank you to Fadi and Peter and to our listeners for tuning in. For a deeper dive into this topic, you can follow the links in the show notes at moody's.com slash podcasts. And if you're listening to this on your favorite podcast platform, please do remember to follow or subscribe. And please tune in again soon for future episodes of Focus on Finance. Thanks for listening to this Moody's Talks podcast. To find out more about the topics discussed, please follow the links in the show notes. You can check out other Moody's Talks podcasts by visiting moody's.com slash podcasts.